1: fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever and with fishing booker you can experience it too no matter where you are discover your next adventure on fishing booker
2: you're listening to the fish untamed podcast your home for fly fishing in the backcountry This is episode 48 with Bucky Buckstabber on the Fly Fishing Collaborative. If you just want to start, I'd love to just hear how you got started in the outdoors and and your intro to fishing.
1: Yeah. um, You know, I was one of those kids that was born with the fishing gene.
2: (laughs) You just had it in you.
1: I just had it in me. I honestly... Um, was pursuing fish in my earliest earliest memories. Um, I grew up early years in Lake Tahoe um, in Truckee um, and just chomping around the lake and in the tributary streams. Um, We lived in a little log cabin out in the woods and my parents were kind of hippies and My dad cut firewood for a living, and we were just kind of like barefoot, wild. My brothers and I were just barefoot, wild kids. Um, My dad didn't really fish, um, and actually, he wasn't really around most of my upbringing, my childhood, um, which is actually a big part of my story. But for some reason, I mean, you know, I take kids fishing a lot these days, and I've got four kids myself now. Unfortunately, none of them inherited the fishing gene. So I think it might skip a generation. Uh oh! <laughs> <laughs> they still fish with me, but not the way that I fished when I was a kid.
2: There's a difference, and, uh, I think, between the people who just have it and, and who uh, pick it up because someone takes them along and kind of forces it on them.
1: <laughs> so one of my kids, one of my son's buddies, he's a neighborhood kid and, and he's got the gene. And like, it's eat, drink, sleep, fish. He reads himself to sleep with fishing magazines his mom reads him fishing magazines before he goes to bed and they're not fisher people, but he's just like, he's got the gene and he just has to fish. Uh-huh. So he'll sit like for endless hours and he, you won't, and he, and he won't lose focus. Whereas the majority of kids, you know, you have to take them to a stocked pond to keep them interested. And that's, you know, a fish, every other cast, but no, Anyways, I was one of those kids. I've always I've always loved to fish. Um, taught myself how to fish just because my dad wasn't in the picture. And my brother, my older brother and I. Um, so fast forward a few years. So my my grade school years, my mom moved us up to the Bay Area in California in, a, in, in the city called Palo Alto, right by Stanford there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so we're just a bunch of wild country kids now stuck in like an urban area. And we had no idea what to do with ourselves. And there's no water. There's freeways everywhere. There's stores and and traffic. And it's just, it's chaos. And that first year of living, we were living at my grandparents' house because they were kind of um, taking care of us for a while because we were pretty down and out at that time in our life. And my brother rode his BMX down the street with there's just this look of just sheer like joy and excitement on his face because he found water with fish in it and he's like Bucky follow me you gotta follow me I found fish <laughs> and I'm like and I'm just like oh okay should I follow him because because sometimes sometimes he play tricks on me and just get me to follow him and it'd be like some kind of prank or an ambush for or sure <laughs> Um, and he loved he'd love to throw me in the juniper bushes, which really sucked. Um, but I, I could tell that that look on his face was real. So I followed him and he rode his bike around the, our out of our neighborhood, past the liquor store, which we weren't allowed to go past. But he went darting past the liquor store and um, around like three more blocks and then stopped at a dead end at this big hedge along the fence next to this five lane freeway. And then he just like disappeared in that hedge and I'm just like, where is he going? And so I went through the hedge. It's kind of like, this is like, these are like magical moments in my life, like pivotal moments. This was like such an adventurous, like day for me. We went through this hedge. There was a cut in the chain link fence and fence and we climbed through the cut in the fence. And now we're on the shoulder of this file of lane freeway and cars are zipping by. I'm like 10 years old and was I even 10? Yeah, maybe nine or 10 years old. And we're now we're playing by the freeway. And my brother proceeds to go over the uh onto the overpass on the freeway and climbs down the overpass, and there was a canal down there. And I followed him down to the canal, and there is just like loads of carp down there. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And so like that became our playground. And that's where we really like honed in our craft of fishing. And we were doing everything we could to figure out what these fish eat and how to fight them and how to catch them. And we ended up just catching like so many amazing carp down there. And that's where I actually caught my first steelhead.
2: Really? Not where where I would have expected to, or I guess it's not even where it's just like, I wouldn't expect to find steelhead with carp in any in any
1: situation. It might've been the last steelhead in Northern California. And I feel really bad because I killed it. (laughs) (laughs) And and this was because uh, this canal is an irrigation canal, but it connects to the Bay. Mm -hmm. And some of these, you know, fish would migrate out of the Bay into the canal. And so this steelhead had found its way up into the, I didn't even know what steelhead had never heard of steelhead. I thought it was this giant trout. And we're actually, we didn't even have our rods that day. Get this, this is crazy. We're like, exploring the canal, walking up and down the canal. And I see this fish like tailing and, and, and just kind of like, you know, I saw this like V of this fish swimming. I'm like, what is that? That doesn't look like a carp. And so I go and I, I follow this fish and it's like something I'd never seen before. And so we're chasing this fish around the canal and it's like two or three feet deep of water and there's some shallower spots, and we're trying to corner it. And, and I took my shirt off and used it as a net. And finally, like after about an hour of chasing and trying to corner the steelhead, I jumped on it and, oh, <laughs> hugged it and caught this steelhead with my bare hands and like dragged it up the bank and was like, look at this. What is it? We dragged it <laughs> home to my grandma so she could see it. And then the, the, the neighbors like were so like baffled that we caught this giant trout looking fish in the canal underneath the freeway. They called the newspaper and we actually got put in the paper three, uh, cause we had a buddy with us. And so three, you know, neighborhood kids in Palo Alto, California caught a steelhead with their bare hands. That was my first steelhead.
2: Oh, I hope you have that, that newspaper article framed somewhere. That'd be an awesome thing to have on your wall.
1: <laughs> I do.
2: <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of like a universally kid thing to do to like, want to, um, capture something at all costs. Like if I saw a, a fish swimming around these days that I wanted to catch, like, it, it would never occur to me that I should try to corner it and like jump on it. But I remember that's something that would definitely have crossed my mind as a kid is we need to spend the next however many hours it takes to figure out how to capture this fish, regardless of the method. Like yeah. I, we just, you know, you, you think of all these plans and like, how can we do this? And the, the fact that you even described it as like cornering it, like that that's something that doesn't, I feel like cross, you know, adult anglers minds, but it's front and center of a kid's mind to just figure out some strategic way to like corner and capture a fish, <laughs>
1: Totally. Totally. Yeah.
2: So how are how are you captured or how are you catching these carp? Like what were you using at the time? Oh, corn
1: all the okay. corn. <laughs> <laughs> We just bring our cans of corn down there and, and um, yeah. And just wait for the, the, the carps that would do the schools of carp would just kind of swim on by and we just wait for them to come by and we just throw our corn at them. And then another adventure we're we're fishing we're catching these carp one day and my brother sees this massive fish in the deep water and he's like there's something down there and he casts at it and we're we've got you know 30 pound line and some you know pretty beefy rods because some of these carp are pretty big like you know like i don't know i'm two three feet two two feet and um and he catches this and you know these canals, they have a, a steep bank down into the water and we're sta- we're sitting at the top of that steep bank. Um, it's concrete, you know, and he cooks this fish and it just takes off and makes this massive wake. And my brother goes sliding down into the water and this fish surfaces and it's literally like five or six feet long. It is this massive fish, with bones coming out the side of it, it looked like a dinosaur. And we're like, what? We're freaked out. And, um, and it just, it ran again and bucked and splashed and broke my brother's 30 pound line. And then we, so we just jetted home and we looked in all of our in like psycho- encyclopedias and, and books, try to find out what kind of fish, like we found out it was a sturgeon.
2: I was going to say the, your description sounds like a sturgeon. I don't know what else could possibly yeah. fit that description, but I don't really know where all they're found. So Right. I wasn't, I wasn't sure. Well, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So I, so you never, never saw it again,
1: never saw it again, never saw another sturgeon there, but you know, it was, we caught some catfish and caught carp and one steelhead and hooked one sturgeon in that canal. And that just, I mean, that just really planted the bug and of fishing for me. I mean, I just, just loved every minute I spent. And also because I was going through a pretty traumatic childhood. And so like what the, the times where I was fishing, was when all those like worries and stress would just disappear Mm -hmm. and I would just kind of be in my own world that was safe for me. And that was what I didn't know at the time was really healing for me.
2: Yeah. I think a lot of people have had experiences like that, but I feel like a lot of the time I hear it from adults who maybe have you know, a stressful job or, or going through a divorce or something like that where they just need to get their mind off it. But yeah, I don't, I don't hear it often. Um, in, in regards to someone's childhood. Cause I feel like most people, when their children are just kind of like, you know, they're oblivious and just going through life and having fun. So yeah, that's interesting to hear that, that you had that experience uh, much younger than a lot of people do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And obviously it wasn't intentional. I wasn't like, uh, you know, 10 years old saying, man, my heart hurts. I'm going to go. Right. But I just, I found something that I love to do that was life-giving for me. And I'm so glad I had that as a kid. My brother and I could share that together. It was really special.
2: Yeah. So um, when you were, I know you mentioned that you grew up kind of near in the, the Tahoe, Truckee area. Um, How were you getting around when you were that young? Because it sounds like uh, once you were in Palo Alto area, you could ride your bikes around and everything's kind of, you know, accessible via roads and, and stuff. But how how did you guys get around at such a young age when you were out, you know, more in the open, open wilderness? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Basically, whenever my parents wanted to go to the lake to party, I would just be exploring the water. Okay. <laughs> so they'd throw us in the back of the pickup and we'd make our way down to the lake.
2: I see. And so at what point did you pick up uh, fly fishing? Cause it sounds like this was all still gear fishing at the time, right. which, you know, figures for being younger kids and fishing for things like carp and stuff. But at what point did you transition over and pick up a fly rod?
1: Yeah. When I was about 15 years old, um, My grandpa, who I had lived with a lot growing up because my family was pretty broken and my grandparents would take me in quite a bit. I'd spent the summers at my grandparents' house in Oregon, um, where I live now, um, on the banks of the Rogue River. My grandpa lived um, on the Rogue River and he occasionally fly fished. And when I was 15 years old, he took me out on the back lawn and taught me how to fly cast because he had planned to take me to Montana the next summer and to go fly fishing because, um, he's actually, he was actually an old Montana bred cowboy and loved to go back to Montana. And, um, and that's where it all started for me. And unfortunately my grandpa died a year later. Um, so I only got to fish with him one time. I got to fly fishing, fly fishing with him one time, but he had this really beautiful um eight foot four weight dickerson taper bamboo fly rod that he fished with on our montana trip and now that's what i fish with oh that's awesome really awesome yeah
2: so did you pick it up like right away were you were you hooked instantly or did it kind of take a while for you to you know have more interest in a different style
1: yeah. So, you know, I wasn't hooked onto fly fishing instantly. I still conventional fish cause it's really what I knew. Uh, and then when I was about, so, but I had some fly fishing experiences, especially that trip in Montana. And then when I was probably 19 or 20 years old, I went down to the local fly shop there in Southern Oregon, just because I just, I wanted to, I wanted to take fishing to the next level. Like, I mean, kind of the techniques that I was using was just getting a little tired. And I, and I, and I had enough of a taste of fly fishing where I thought, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go see if I can fly fish. And so I bought like this, you know, totally like low end, um, fly rod kit and, and had the, the guy, I had the guy at the fly shop. When I bought the kit, I just took the rod out. I took it out of the box and I said, Hey, can you show me how to cast this thing? And so we went out to the parking lot and he showed me how to cast it. And at the, and I was just like, okay. And he's like, hey, you've done this before, haven't you? And I was like, I've done, I did this once when I was a teenager. So I, just tell me everything I need to know. And so he told. He spent like an hour with me. And then from that point on, I think it's only been fly fishing.
2: Yeah, that's, that's interesting that that happens to people because I feel like um, there's a lot of activities that people start with and then they kind of progress and branch out a little bit, but there's always that, you know, kind, of, kind of home turf they come back to, but um, I feel like a lot of times when people pick up a fly rod for the first time, they never ever go back. Yeah, and uh, I go back occasionally, but a lot of people I know like haven't haven't touched anything but a fly rod in decades.
1: Yeah, yep, I mean, that, I'm one of them.
2: Kind of transitioning over to um, your work now. How did you? How did you become interested in this? Was this um, something that was kind of inspired by your childhood, or did you did something else bring you into the world of nonprofit work and, and trying to help people who are? You know not in a great situation
1: yeah that's a great question um so i've always had i would say a bleeding heart for kids um especially kids that you know don't have a lot going for them kids that are abused and and are treated very unjustly it just it just wrecks me i just have a a real burden for them and i think partly just because um i understand some childhood trauma just from my own background. Um, but I just I just have always loved kids. Um so then when I was in my 20s, um I really started working with kids I became a children's pastor at the local church and just loved it. And then uh and then I became my 30s, I became a director of camps, of uh summer camps for abused and neglected kids in the foster care system. And that was, I mean, powerful. I mean and that's, by that time I was living in Portland, Oregon, and I would take these kids for a week out of a time from, a lot of these kids were in between foster homes. A lot of these kids had backgrounds that just would just crush you. Just, just heart-wrenching stories. And I get to spend a whole week with them. And, um, and it's just, you know, it just was so rewarding uh, to say the least, just knowing that you're bringing some kind of joy into these kids' lives and the backdrop of so much pain and trauma um, was just awesome. And then I got to a point, and this is, uh, you know, this, it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to explain, but I just have to talk about what was happening just in my soul at the time. Um, because I got to a point in my life, and this is, you know, in my 30s, and I'm just, you know, always fishing. It's, it's just what I love to do. It's every, you know, free moment I have, I'm going to go, you know, swing a fly for steelhead or go find some trout to, you know, catch on a dry somewhere or something. But at a certain point, um, I just realized that life is so much more than just living for yourself and doing what pleases you. And it became kind of like a period of my life where I just was challenging myself to stop being so materialistic and self serving. And this great realization started to form in my, in, my, in my thinking, in my worldview. And that is that when we exist, not just for ourselves, but for the good of others then we're gonna thrive as the human beings that we're supposed to be. Okay, so we have that. That's, I mean, that's, that's really important to how I want to live my life, not just living for myself, but living for the good of others and benefiting the lives of the good of, of others, especially those that need help the most. And when we do that, not only are we helping other people, but we're thriving as the human beings that we're supposed to be. So there's that. But then on top of that, I just have this realization that we don't we don't have to conform to somebody else's methodology to do good in the world but we can simply be who we are and do what we love what we're passionate about but funnel that for the good of others.
2: Right, like find a way to to channel something that you already believe in and you know mm. you're already putting your time into it but do it for other people instead of just as an as a way to enjoy yourself in your free time,
1: because you know, because when you do that, when you channel your passions for the good of others, because doing justice work is exhausting, and it can it's sacrificial, and it can take a toll, and it's and it's emotional, um, and it, it you carry a burden with you. Doing justice work is not easy, but if you can do it through something that you're passionate about. I believe that's where you can last the long haul because because you're still doing something that is life-giving for you. So I began to ask myself, how can I use fly fishing to do better things in the world than just serve myself? How can I use fly fishing to actually benefit the lives of those that need help the most, especially kids? And so I just started to ask that question and kind of look at fly fishing through a different lens. Like not just something that's good for me, but something that's good for others too. Something that I can actually funnel for the good of others. And there's something so beautiful about a community coming together with shared passion and joining forces and doing something amazing together. It's a powerful force. No,
2: did you just, did you have this, was this, I mean, I assume this idea kind of, you know, formed over time, like maybe you have that, that spark of idea and then you're like, okay, well, how can I, how can I do this then? You know, I I want to help others. Um, and I know I want to do that as, you know, channeling through my love of fly fishing. Uh, how did you kind of come up with the idea that you did? Like, are you going out on the river and tossing ideas around in your head? Are you bouncing ideas off other people? Like, how did you arrive at the final product, if you will, of, of what Fly Fishing Collaborative is now?
1: Yeah. Great question. Um and at this point, I don't even think our listeners know that we'll, probably don't even know what I do with fly fishing collaborative. So yeah, well,
2: we, yeah, we can get we can start with that, I guess. That's a good, <laughs> good point. <laughs> we'll save it for the end and just drop it as a as That's a right. surprise. Yeah.
1: yeah, we'll taunt them a little bit, tease them. Um here's here's how the, the like kind of the the fly fishing collaborative was formed was I was just kind of like toying around with like, what can I, so I just started throwing parties at my house. So I thought, man, I'm going to, I'm going to like, I'm going to look at fly fishing differently because being a steelheader like in the Northwest you know, you'd get up at like four in the morning because you want to get, you know, your special piece of water before anybody else gets there. And you want that low light condition for those summer fish. And you want to be the first in the run. So whenever you would run into people, you'd be like, Oh, man, dang it. I wanted I wanted this spot for me. And then so I just (laughs) now I'm fighting with this kind of new mentality of fishing. It's like, how can I actually like be better to other people through fish fishing? And so I started meeting, you know, being more intentional about giving people water and meeting people on the river and inviting them to my house and throwing these kind of fly fishing focus parties. And, and it was fun, but it just wasn't enough for me. Like, how can we do justice? How can we do something radical? And I'm just kind of, I was probably for about a year. I was just really kind of contemplating that. And some friends of mine had learned how to build aquaponics farms and aquaponics farms are an incredible little farm system where you raise your own fish in these little self-enclosed fish tanks. And next to the fish tanks, you build these grow beds where you can grow vegetables and all sorts of produce and the waste from the fish fertilizes the vegetables. And in that little self-enclosed ecosystem, it also the it captures all the nutrients from the waste of the fish, filters into the grow beds, and that filtered water is now purified and gets pumped back into the fish so it recycles all the same water. So these incredible little farming systems that are so eco-friendly um, that you know, are incredibly like environmentally safe and organic. And they had, they learned how to build these to help support orphanages around the world. And they're like, we want to go, there's, they were connected to a couple of orphanages um, in Asia and Africa. And they thought we've learned how to build these farms and we want to go build them for these these orphanages. And then they got done with those projects and they didn't know what they were going to do next. And so then my wife said, why don't we fundraise through fly fishing? And like, why don't we fund some of these farms? And that's when I knew that's it. That's what we're supposed to do. And so we just thought, okay, so I've got a bunch of friends in the fly fishing community. We know a whole bunch of guides. Let's just hold a fundraiser. And I was, there was a, a, a safe home in Thailand that I was very well aware of that was um, caring for about 130 kids that have all been either rescued from brothels and from trafficking or were being prevented from entering into trafficking because they had, you know, we're living in extreme poverty. And so there's a bunch of kids living in the safe home. And I thought that man, that safe home could really use a aquaponics farm to help with its sustainability. Let's let's call the out the fly fishing community. Let's create some kind of fundraiser and let's go build a farm for that safe home in Thailand. And so we just started asking, like it was just totally raw and organic and grassroots. And we just, Thought we just started asking guides if they would donate trips, and we'd put together this little auction, and um, and create this little fundraiser. And it only took a few months, and we raised our first ten thousand dollars. Wow! And, and we were on our way to Thailand to go build one of these farms. It was in, that was in two thousand fourteen. It was incredible. It was life changing. Just knowing that, oh my gosh, just me kind of reshaping my thinking in how I pursue my simple hobby of fly fishing is now feeding 133 kids in Northern Thailand that have all been rescued from trafficking. This is a big deal. This is huge. Like, This is a game changer for me. And, um, and I realized that, gosh, I have been putting so many limitations, self-imposed limitations on what I actually think is possible for us human beings to accomplish together even through something so ordinary and so simple as fly fishing and so i came back from the thailand trip and realized that like this is this is all i want to do with my life like we this this was too good not to keep doing and to pursue and to grow And so that's when, you know, the FFC, the Fly Fishing Collaborative was was officially formed and we became a 501C3 nonprofit and just kept finding safe homes and orphanages and kept building farms. And so now it's seven years later and we've built 12 farms in 10 different countries uh, around the world. And it's what I do full time and it's incredible.
2: That's awesome. So uh, how does, walk me through kind of how, the fly fishing community connects to these aquaponics farms. I, I assume it's mostly a fundraising through, you know, donations. Uh, you know, you mentioned like guided trips and things, but like, how um, how does the money get from fly fishing community, uh, guides, anglers, etc., to uh, the finished product of an aquaponics farm in another country to help to help orphanages and other homes?
1: So, how does the the how is the money raised, and then how yeah. is Yeah. The... Is that, yeah, I guess
2: I, I, I guess like how how um how do you harness the fly fishing community to fund these projects? Great, is question. maybe a, a simpler way to, to ask that.
1: Yes, yes. So basically, um, through three different avenues, um, we've got kind of three different fundraising streams, um, so to speak. One of them is through our events, and so um, and our I just love our events. Our events are just a blast because. It's bringing the fly fishing community together to celebrate what we've done, but also just to mobilize them to do more around the world. And so um, we have an annual banquet every single year in Portland, Oregon, that usually, you know, we bring in like 250, 300 people at this big, you know, fundraising banquet. And at that banquet, we have, a, you know, large auction And we've got a, you know, like an oral auction. We've got an auctioneer and we've got all these guides. We've got a network of amazing guides and outfitters that donate trips and um, experiences and lodges that will donate stays at their lodge. And we'll just and we'll auction those off at our fundraisers. Or, you know, fly, you know, fishing companies will donate rods and reels and gear and swag. And we'll don't, you know, that all goes to our auction. So our auction is a really big fundraising platform for us. It's kind of the backbone of, of all of our fundraising. Um, and then we'll do like fly fishing film tour showings. So we've got, so we've got ambassadors in different regions. You know, we've got ambassadors in... Um, we've got, you know, Montana and in Oregon and, um, gee, I think it's just, oh, oh, uh, some ambassadors in BC and we've got, you know, different ambassadors in different regions that will like host a fly fishing film tour at their local theater and ticket sales will go to FFC and they'll do a little raffle and things. So just fun events like that, that bring the fly fishing community together we get to share about our next projects, and then we'll raise some money through raffles and auctions. Uh, number two is we have a um, some products that we developed. So we partnered with this uh, leather company in um, Texas, and we uh, they helped us design these incredible like little heirloom quality like fly fishing. Wall, uh, fly wallets and okay paces all leather and wool you know kind of like the stuff that your grandpa would have fished with the old school style old school like you know heirloom stuff it's so cool um and so we've designed a bunch of those cool little leather products and we sell those and that kind of you know creates a fun little fly fishing oriented uh revenue stream for us And then it's direct giving. We just have people that just love what we're, and I mean, we have families that will be like, man, we believe in what you're doing and we'll write a check to sponsor the next farm. And obviously direct support is huge for us. Just people that just need to make a tax deductible donation and they'll make it to fly fishing collaborative. And we'll go do something awesome with it.
2: For sure. I think it's important that you have the, the events and things you do because I feel like there's a lot of organizations out there that literally just take money and they do things with it, which is great. And I don't mean to take that away from them or the fact that you guys also accept direct donations, but I think it really helps to have these, you know, like community events. Like even though a guide could just straight up donate, let's say a da- a daily trip with them costs $500. Like they could just donate $500, um, which is the equivalent of giving away a guided trip for free. But there's something different I feel like about having people donate their time instead of their money. Um, I feel like it makes people feel more invested. Like I don't particularly love sending out my credit card number and just being like, here's 50 bucks toward your cause. It's, I don't really feel that connected to it. I send it away. I kind of forget about it. But um, I don't mind at all being like, hey, I'll take two hours out of my time to donate that in some way to, to benefit somebody else. Because it, it feels like I'm a little bit more connected with it. Um, I remember that. I have a memory from it. And then when I see the good that comes from it, I'm like, oh, look, I, I helped with that. And I just don't get that same feeling if I just write a check and send it off. And uh, I think that's awesome that you guys do these events where, you know, maybe you're not taking money directly, but they host a a, a film tour for, for you. And now everyone who comes to that is like well aware that their money is going toward that cause. And it just it it brings more of a community aspect to it than just somebody sending off money and forgetting about it and and not remembering who you are a month later. So I think that's really awesome that you do those kind of community based things and having people donate their their time and their resources, instead of just writing you a check
1: directly. Totally. And I'm, yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because, you know, from the founding of the collaborative, I've always wanted this to be shared. I wanted this, I don't want this just to be something that I'm doing or our team is doing. I want it to be something that our community is doing together. And so we always strive to have as much involvement with the greater fly fishing community as we possibly can. Um, And so there's actually some other cool little um, ways that we do that as well. We have a lot of fly tires that tie flies for the organ because it's the same idea of doing what you love to do and what you're good at, but doing it to benefit the lives of other people. So we've got this team of fly tires because they love the fly ties or tie flies (laughs) and, um, and they're good at it, but, They don't want to just keep doing it just for their fly box. You know what I mean?
2: You can only have so many woolly buggers in your box before it's kind of full.
1: Exactly. (laughs) And so they'll tie flies and donate them to FFC and we sell them on our website. So we've got like this whole team of fly tires now that tie flies that will, um, you know, go for sale on our site to directly go towards our farm projects, which is really awesome. And then we also bring volunteers on our trips, which is huge. Like, we, we don't just go build these farms by ourselves. Like we rely on a team of volunteers Mm -hmm. and we usually bring like eight to 10 volunteers on every farm build that we do.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm, well, I'm making an assumption here, but I'm sure it's not terribly hard to find volunteers who want to go to another country and, you know, experience that and contribute to something greater. Like I, you know, that sounds, that sounds like a great time.
1: Especially when you add in a little fishing at the end.
2: (laughs) I was going to finish up today by asking you if you've, you've gotten to fish in any of these other countries. So um, well, We'll hold on that, but I would like to hear a little bit about that at the end.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's what I do. I mean, it's 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 yeah, it's how we do it. So we definitely you know add in fishing in in some portion of the trip.
2: So tell me more about the the aquaponics farms themselves. Um, I so you mentioned like an orphanage might get a farm and that helps feed everybody, but how does this actually contribute toward um, the limit limiting of you know women and children being. Uh, sold into sex trafficking. Like, are are they um, getting jobs working on the on the aquaponics farm, or are they just being sheltered and they they're reaping the benefits of the food? Uh, like, what what all benefits, I guess, come from these uh, aquaponics systems that you guys set up?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, um, and um, I'll answer that just kind of by saying, I mean, this is the harsh reality: is that. It's estimated right now that there are 24.9 million people in the world that are being trafficked today. And out of those 24.9 million people, 50% are exploited and sold sexually. And out of that 50%, 70% are women and young girls. And most of them around the world are being exploited and sold simply because of a lack of resource. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough water. They don't have any way of income to provide for themselves, and so they basically become their own only commodity, is their bodies. So, so it's work. not that
2: they're necessarily being captured as much as it is uh, oh, no. that they're they're resorting to.
1: This it's it's as both. A, no, okay, both. It's both. Oh, oh, yeah. It's it's very much both. So, I mean, some are you know resorting to prostitution, but so many are coerced into it because of their vulnerabilities, like the. Tr- The trafficking industry thrives and preys on the vulnerable. And so when they find those impoverished, vulnerable communities, they will either abduct them, which we have seen a lot of horrific, horrific stories um, of children getting abducted out of, you know, hill tribe villages in northern thailand or the himalayan villages in nepal and they'll literally just kids will just literally disappear and get sent across the border and where there's language barriers and just be stuck in a brothel for the rest of their life it's it's horrible Um, so there is that there's a lot of abduction but there's also a lot of tricking too where um traffickers will come into a destitute village and they'll you know see a uh, grandma trying to raise all of her grandkids because the parents have died or they're gone or whatever um or just some you know village p- parents trying to raise some other kids and they and, and they just can't and so they you know, they go in and they say, hey, we work for this factory in the nearby city, and we see that you're struggling to take care of your kids, and we need workers in the factory, and we will employ your children and give them a good wage and educate them, and they'll even offer them some front money um, to gain their trust, and so they'll send their kids off to go get educated in jobs, and they'll end up in just in brothels. It's all a trick. And so, you know, um, and so there's that there's there's, you know, ways where, you know, traffickers and this is actually more common also in like domestic trafficking in the States where, you know, the traffickers will get the vulnerable um, girls or women hooked on drugs and they become dependent on the trafficker. And there's a whole grooming process. And then, you know, and then they'll hold all, you know, they'll even get them pregnant and then they'll hold their lives of their children as leverage for them if they don't do what they want them to do and they're just making money hand over fist for with these women and girls um and they're just strung out and dependent on their traffickers and i mean so so there's there's lots of different methods but the common thread is that they 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 pray and, and and feed on the vulnerable so when we when i learned this i just thought man if so many kids are getting sold around the world simply because they don't have enough food and water let's create a sustainable resource for them so they have enough food and so they have enough so they can sell produce in the marketplace and they can make a good living or they can sell fish in the marketplace and make a good wage. And that will lessen the risk of them being sold into trafficking because it's no longer
2: enticing to go off and, and try to scrounge out a living somewhere else because your life isn't in shambles where you
1: are. Totally. They're being empowered. Okay. So, so when we set out to, to build these farms, um, we, set out to build them for two different types of scenarios. One is the safe homes and orphanages that are already caring for the kids. And they, we want them to be more self-sustaining. And so if there's a safe some of these safe homes are basically just a couple of parents in the village that don't want their children to be stuck in brothels. And so they'll open up their home to these kids to keep them from falling into the traps of, you know, the industry that is praying around their region. And so, um, so they'll try to finance their homes, these safe homes themselves. And, um, and so we come in and we build them a farm so that they can feed the kids. And so that they can offset their food budgets and not rely on Western money, but just to be empowered to create their own source of income themselves. And so they can, you know, food to feed the kids. They can have produce to sell in the marketplace and create their own little revenue stream so they can expand their budget and take in more kids. So that's one way that we do it. And another way is to actually provide farms for communities to create jobs. Um, And. Um, and that one's a little, you know, that one's a little more challenging for us to do because we're not already working with a trustworthy safe home that is already doing the good work of rescuing kids or preventing kids from into trafficking. So, you know, most of our farms have been for orphanages and safe homes, but we have a project in Belize, for instance, that is actually coming up in the next couple of months where we're building a farm for an entire village of 300 people and that's going to be something that's going to create that there's no jobs in that village and because of that the the kids are really suffering and so we're actually going to build a farm that's going to create jobs in that village
2: now what's been the uh, the response of the people who uh, end up with these farms and end up working on them like do you do you keep in contact with anybody after the fact to see like how things are going and how the how the response has been
1: hundred percent. Yeah. 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 We offer lifetime support. So, I mean, we give them the farm it's theirs. We get nothing from it other than the fact that like we're doing something awesome for that community. Um, And yeah, yeah. We've got lots of stories where um, you know, we just received a really cool video from a farm that we did in Thailand. They're caring for about 160 kids. Every single one of these kids have been rescued from brothels in the most horrendous situations and it's a really, it's a very high security um, farm or a uh, home because the traffickers, you know, I mean, every one of these kids is in witness protection. Um, and so we built a pretty large scale farm for them and they just uh, sent us a really cool video um, thanking us for one, but showing us that they actually expanded the farm. So now they're adding on to it and which is really, really cool. And then they're also working it into their, they school, they teach the kids, they educate the kids in the home. So now they're working it into their a- agricultural um, education program, which is oh, awesome. cool. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, we, yeah. Um, we, we track with, with the farms that we've built, um, as much as we can and offer just lifetime assistance if and whenever needed.
2: That's good to hear because I actually, I mean, I was aware of this, but I came up again um, within the past couple of days, kind of the harmful side of, I think it was called like volunteerism, you know, where people go over to Africa and like build infrastructure for villages over there, which seems like a great thing, but then when they leave um you know you're relying on a village that doesn't have a lot of money or a lot of skills to maintain a western building you know that people have built over there to our standards where we have plenty of resources and electricity and water to to maintain these things and the village is kind of left out out in the cold just trying to figure out how to maintain this thing that they didn't have the resources for um so it's great to hear that you know the communities you're you're building these for not only are you providing the support but it sounds like they're also uh, equipped to continue maintaining those and benefiting from them and expanding them. It seems like when they, when they want to do so.
1: Yeah. Training is a big deal for us. And so, um, you know, in order us, in, in order for us to actually take on a project, there's gotta be three things in place. Obviously there needs to be a water source. There needs to be a power source because um, you know, whether it's solar or they're on the grid or whatever it is, because, Um, there's a a small pump that recycles the water within the system, but there's gotta be a farm manager that is dedicated to operating that farm that's trustworthy and that we can train. And that's, that's, I mean, without that, we just can't build a farm because we need some because knowledge is power. (laughs) And so um, we spend a lot of time training the farm managers and how to make it productive and keep it productive. Yeah.
2: Well, I'm sure that also goes well with, like you said, that it's a little bit easier to build these in existing homes because, you know, these, these homes are obviously already functioning. So
1: exactly.
2: you, you have to have somebody in place who is responsible and knowledgeable and can handle something of, of kind of a grave significance of, of running one of these uh, orphanages. So I feel like that kind of lends itself to, there's probably someone around who could, who could handle the responsibilities of, of running the farm and, and wants to, I'm sure.
1: Yes, totally. Yep. Yeah. So I really see us as like, you know, a, a organization that is s- entirely geared up to support people that are already on the ground doing amazing work in rescuing kids. And now we come in and build them a farm so they can do it more sustainably.
2: Before we talked, so I tried to do a little bit of research before I talked to somebody just so I have a background, but I don't want to do too much so I can you know, ask, ask good questions. But I was, I was, confused before we talked about how how this all worked with the fly fishing community but that's awesome to hear that it's kind of like it's almost like two separate things like you're not you're not taking necessarily fly fishing like it could be anything i guess is what i mean by that it's it's fly fishing because that's what you're passionate about but it's not it's not trying to take fly fishing and somehow weave it into people's lives because you feel like you need to like you're just you're just using that to raise the money to do something in the best way possible for these people I think there's people who would try to bring fly fishing into this somehow beyond just raising money, and it wouldn't be the best thing for the people on the receiving end because you'd be trying to force what you like into that portion of it. Um, and instead, you're harnessing it on you're harnessing your love for fly fishing on one end of it, and then the other end is just exactly what needs to happen over there um, without, without getting them muddied up together. Uh, and that's why I was a little confused before I read up on you guys, like how fly fishing actually plays into this. Cause I knew it was aquaponics farms and helping, um, vulnerable women and children, but I was like, where does, where does fly fishing come in? Um, so that's, that's really cool that you're, you're kind of keeping them separate in order to get the most benefit on the other end.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. It's just, You know, it's, it's, it's what I'm passionate about and it's the community that I feel like is a powerful force. And when you have a group of people, a community of people that have shared interests together uh, and they funnel that to do something amazing, a lot can happen. And I feel like it's, you know, it's, it makes it a lot more sustainable and fun for me. It's like, I get to do what I love and, and, and work within the community that I love, but do it for something so much bigger in the world. Right.
2: Right. Absolutely. Well, to wrap up, do you want to? I, I do want to hear some stories if you have any about you traveling to all these other countries and setting these up. Uh, I'm sure you have gotten quite a bit of time to explore around and you know see some unique species and, and places. Like, do you have any highlights from from your time overseas?
1: Oh boy, yeah, I do. Um gosh you know this one of the i think one of the experiences that always comes to mind when talking about just kind of our international fly fishing trips uh, and our travels was you know there was a there's a fish that i always wanted to catch um it's called a mossier do you know what mossier are i Have don't know i've never heard of that oh, yeah there's golden mossier which is <clears throat> the bigger of the the mossier family and they live in like a, in uh, mostly in India, some in Nepal, but mostly in India and, and north of India. But um,
2: how do you spell that, by the way?
1: M A H S E E R, I think.
2: Okay. Yeah, I'm going to look that up, see what it looks like.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. They're amazing. And so we were on our way to Thailand, and I knew that Thailand had Masir, but I had no idea. I didn't have any connections to anybody that knew where to fish for Masir in Thailand um and most people in thailand when you ask them like about fish they just have one word for fish it's fish and so they don't identify like the you know the people in the streets and everything. It's like hey do you know where you got to find any masir they're like oh it was fish fish and they're like oh fish they'll show you a bunch of dried fish at the market but <clears throat> and so i'm just like i was getting i wanted to take the team after our farm build to go find some mas- masir somewhere and finally um like right before we were gonna uh, fly out to go build the farm, I got word from this guy that takes that knew how to fish for mossier down in southern Thailand, and I knew nothing about him, but it was my one connection. And so I emailed him and he emailed back and I said, Hey, I heard you can fish for Mossier. Can you take a team of like six people to go Masir fishing? We'd love to join you after we go do this project in, in Northern Thailand. And he said, yeah, I can take you. And it's, you know, this, this much money I'll take you. And it was like nothing. Cause everything is cheap in Thailand. And, um, And so I just booked it. I knew nothing about him. I knew nothing about where we were going, but all I knew is that we needed to dedicate at least four days because he's taking us so deep in the jungle. And so I asked the team and they were up for it. They were, they were ready for an adventure. And so we, he had us meet him down at this uh, this big lake, um, huge lake with, um, on kind of at the, the foothills of the jungle and all these feeder streams would kind of feed into this lake from, from the hills, from the, and like had all these veins, this lake just massive veins and feeder streams everywhere. And so we met him at the dock and we threw all our luggage in there. He's the one English speaking guy. He goes actually Dutch. And everybody, everybody else that um, was taking us out with him were all, Native Thai people that actually lived in tribes in the jungle. Um, they were pretty, you know, uh, pretty hardy. It was, a, and so we hop in the long tail boat. We drive for about a half a day down one of these channels of this lake and park at this floating bungalow. And it's just breathless. This jungle is like what you would see in Jurassic Park or something. It was just absolutely the most beautiful place. I could ever, I have ever seen. It's just indescribably beautiful. And we wake up, so we're sleeping and we can't sleep in the jungle because there's too many wild animals in the jungle and too many critters and too many crazy insects and snakes. And so we're sleeping on a little floating bungalow. That's just a bunch of planks tied together with a canopy on top. I mean, there's really not logs and planks and canopies is all that we had to sleep on. And we wake up early the next morning and he says, you guys looks like, looks like you guys can hike. We're going to hike up, up the rivers. And, for a while. And, and two of the, the Thai guys were standing behind him with like machine, like literally like machine guns. We're like, okay, now, now we're either, I'm a little nervous. We're either going to have the best fishing trip of our life or they're going to kill us. And I don't know which way this <laughs> is going to fall. And so I asked the guy that spoke English, I said, what are the what are the machine guns for? And he, and he said, oh, because of elephants and tigers. Okay, <laughs> oh, this is gonna geez. be fun. This yeah, is gonna be fun. a good trip. Yeah. Exciting. So we ended up spending the day in the next several days hiking up elephant trails. And if you think about elef- like hiking up like dense jungle, but the elephant trails are like six feet wide, like clear cut, like, cause these elephants are not small. So we're hiking elephant trails along the rivers. It was just amazing. And stalking these, these, these streams and we find a pool and we literally, these fish are so spooky, you can't even step into the water because once you step into the water, they'll sense you and they're gone.
2: That's interesting. They're, like I would expect something that's not in a heavily pressured area to not care about humans at all.
1: I have never fished for a, a spookier fish than these blue mossier. They were so spooky. But if you could, if you could approach that pool um, especially the big ones. The big ones were tough, but if you could approach that pool without uh, without any kind of trigger, they were they we, were, we would use these big giant foam spiders, like these because there's a lot of canopy over the, the you know in the jungle and the canopy hanging over the the creeks and these big spiders would fall down. And
2: oh man, do- that sounds. It, it sounds creepy to have to use a fly of, of a giant spider. Cause I don't, I don't know if I want to fish somewhere where, <laughs> where the fish can just feast on giant spiders all the time. <laughs>
1: nah, it was, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. It was, I mean, we saw an elephant, we didn't see a tiger, but we saw a leopard. Oh, wow. Uh, which a clouded leopard, which is really rare. Um, and we caught so many of these, just um, gorgeous blue moss here.
2: Yeah. I looked uh, them up. It, it almost looks like a, like an arapaima combined with a, a carp or a catfish or something. Yeah, they've like
1: got it, those big scales, but they're shaped more like a bonefish. But they've got like this the scales of like a, a carp or a tarpon or something. Yeah, giant scales, and they're fast. I mean, they're lightning fast. Yeah, that's um,
2: that's sweet. i I've, I've never I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody who's fished in in this region of the world before. Like it's not it's not one that comes to mind when you think of you know the fishing destinations, but. It sounds awesome.
1: Yeah, it's not a destination. That's why it was so hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> um and the the one the one downside to that trip was we absolutely got annihilated by leeches. I mean Oh. Yeah. Just eaten alive by leeches. Um not in the water. The leeches in Thailand are they are on the trails in the mud. So when it rains, the leeches come out of the ground in the mud and they go crawling and they crawl like an inchworm. They've got, they've got mouths on both ends and they crawl like inchworms and they're anywhere from like tiny millimeter size to like the size of your pinky. And they're like little alien creatures and they got everywhere under our clothes. And, and, you know, you can't feel them cause they have this anesthetic. So they're just, they'll just latch on. You don't know it Yeah. We get back. We get back to the bungalow and we literally have like, we're like, polka dotted with blood spots all over our clothes where leeches have been eating us. Oh wow! It was kind of, it was kind of like psychological torture, but if the fishing is good enough, you don't care about the leeches. And yeah. I
2: mean, the worst mosquitoes I've ever braved have been to go fishing and, and it doesn't stop me from doing so, but I would never want to just like go through, go on a hike through those clouds of mosquitoes. You know, you'll, exactly. you'll do a lot, a lot worse stuff if there's a fish at the end.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
2: You know, stories like that make you realize how good we have it in North America. Like we've got bears and stuff, but big, yeah. big things that you can avoid. Uh, yeah. And then you hear these stories about, it's always the jungle. Uh, and I, I uh, lived in Australia for six months and it was, it was the same thing where you're just constantly worried about, you know, there's just creepy crawlies over there that you can't even imagine. Cause we don't have to worry about stuff like that over here. We have, we have all the normal stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah. Australia has got a lot of dangerous critters, unlike New Zealand, which has like none
2: nothing, nothing at all. There's just nothing there. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I, that was, that was an awesome story. I gotta say, I, I've never talked to anyone who's fished over there and that's just very interesting to hear about. Um, but th- just to wrap up, do you want to share, um, where people can find you guys, if they want to learn more about the fly fishing collaborative or, uh, ways they can help. I know the banquet just finished up, so the timing's not ideal, but I'm sure this ha- you probably guys probably do this every year. So um, yeah. just share how people can help if they're looking to contribute, um, even if it's events next year, uh, once things start to open up, back up again. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we kind of set up for our banquet all year long, our banquets in March, but we're always trying to collect, donate, donated trips from guides and find new, you know, partners to partner with. And, and geared, you know, to auction off. So, you know, we take donations for, for our auction all the time, which is awesome. The, um, and we also have a couple of fly, uh, fly to fishing film tour events um, coming up this summer and fall. Um, I think the, all the ones that we're doing this year are in Portland. So I think we got, or in, in Oregon, we've got one in Bend and one in Portland and I think one in, in Southern Oregon. Um, uh, but flyfishingcollaborative.org is our website and you can just yeah um check out the website get more information there um facebook um fly fishing collaborative instagram fly fishing collaborative so yeah follow us um yeah and just you know we've got a newsletter that you can we always share stories through our newsletter um you can just connect you know sign up for our newsletter through our website but yeah that's that's about it
2: Awesome. Well, Bucky, I, I really appreciate you coming on. And this is a really fun conversation, um, despite the kind of d- the dark side. It, it's really great what you guys are doing. And I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing that.
1: Yeah, Thanks for having me. It's been fun.
2: All right, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.
1: most legendary shows in the outdoors is on waypoint tv don't miss primo's truth about hunting wednesday nights at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment
0: you're listening to the waypoint podcast network brought to you in part by hunt stand the number one hunting and land management app